You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning again, everyone. So we start today a new summer series. It's summer. And I know for you Floridians, or for us Floridians, I'm not sure what summer means exactly. It kind of starts somewhere in late February and it lasts through like November, right? I thought that was funnier. <laughs> I, I really don't understand humor apparently. I say things and then some of you laugh and I'm like, what are they laughing at? And then I try to tell a joke and everybody just sits there. <laughs> but um, our summer series, we've titled it Family Ties. And we're going to be focusing over the rest of the summer on various passages and characters out of the Old Testament. And what we're hoping that this summer series does for us is that it connects us with the history and the stories and the life and the practices of the people of God. Because we aren't the first church to ever exist on the planet. God didn't just kind of float down and say, Let's just have Oasis. I mean, Oasis might sound a bit like it's an isolated spot out in the desert, but it's, it's not. We are part of a great and grand tradition. And just like our families, um, the, the history of our group and the traditions of our group and the stories of our group and the practices of our group shape who we are. They, they tell us who we are. Like things that we do every day, that, that is who we are. We can't really separate what we do from who we are, both positively and also negatively. So for example, if you're a person who regularly attends class and you do your assignments and you read and you study and you meet with other uh, people who are doing this, what do we call you? Student. A student, yes. You're a student. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. That's kind of positively. Uh, negatively, if, if you happen to tell a lie, we might say, well, you told a lie. But if every day, multiple times a day, you lie, you lie to others, you lie to yourself, you lie about everything, what do we call you? A liar, a liar. right. We can't kind of separate our doing from our being. Those are all part of one and, one and the same. It's this way for Jesus as well, right? We don't want to separate the person of Jesus from the work of Jesus. Who he is, of course, matters beyond everything. He is the incarnate word of God. He is the divine son. He's also the one who came and lived a life and taught us and served as an example who died on a cross and who was resurrected by the Father. That's part of who he is. So who he is and what he's done, and I would say is doing, as he continues to intercede at the right hand of the Father, right, is all tied together. And so we want to do this. We want to have some fun. We, uh, it's like looking back at old family photos. It's like kind of attending a family reunion, which I know for some of you might sound like torture, but it's the good part of that, right? When we remember where we've come from, where we, 
reflect on that and where we put into practice some of those things. And so our Tuesday night uh, sessions, labs, the learning and belonging sessions, are going to kind of reflect the Sunday morning sermon. So whatever we are kind of looking at on Sunday morning, we're going to look at again, maybe in more depth on, on Tuesday. And Carol is leading those sessions, and I would encourage you to come. Today, we're going to look at one of my favorite characters, uh, Elijah. Um, and we're going to start in, in 1 Kings 19. This is a pretty familiar story, but I, I want to um, read it for us nonetheless. So this is 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So the gods, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he got up and he fled for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. Is it enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At the place he came to a cave, and he spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong it was splitting the mountains, that it was splitting the mountains, and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. That's where the lectionary um, 
the kind of uh, selected text from church from the church kind of ends the reading for today. So what's going on here? Uh, Elijah has come from what many would say would have been his greatest victory, right? He was in this kind of uh, contest with the prophets of Baal. And it was, it was, um, there was a lot of uh, trash talking that was going on at that contest. It was on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal were kind of trying to call down fire and they didn't have a lot of success and Elijah kept kind of teasing them saying maybe your God's asleep or maybe you should, you know, scream a little louder. Your, you know, your God can't hear you. Maybe your God's deaf. I mean, you know, you've ever kind of been on the basketball court with, uh, I don't know how many of you play basketball, but there's some pretty significant trash talkers. That's kind of part of the psychological game, right? If you can get somebody else um, a little upset, then they're not going to be able to kind of make the shot. It's why when, when, um, when people are trying to make a free throw, the, the crowd's yelling at them and kind of waving things, right? They're just trying to distract them. That was apparently part of Elijah's uh, mode of operation there on Mount Carmel. So Elijah's successful there um, by, by all kind of contemporary and maybe also ancient standards. But then word gets back to the queen, Jezebel, that her prophets, uh, her priests in, in the ministry of Baal had all been slaughtered. And she's like, enough is enough. You send word to that Elijah that I'm going to make his life end just like theirs. And it wasn't like Elijah said, well, come, come and get it. You know, I'm the man of God. Look what I just did. Instead, he's like, uh-oh, time, time to go. And so he runs. I mean, it's a pretty far distance from Mount Carmel down to Beersheba. It's like the distance of the country, <laughs> right? Um, and so he kind of runs from the far north down to the far south. And um, when he gets there, he's almost at the far southern end. Uh, he leaves his servant and he goes another day journey down into the desert uh, in, the, in the wilderness. And there he just prays. And he prays to die. Now, life has to get pretty bad, I think before you think, well, the best thing that can happen for me is if I just check out. But that's, that's where Elijah is here. He's saying, Lord, I've done what I can do. It's been a good run, but just take me. And he lays down. That's a, that's a bad spot. Now, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of us here have, have felt that way to varying degrees in our lives. And if, if that's the case, I, I want you to know that God loves you. That, that this is not the end. That there is more to come. That there is love and there is mercy and there is hope. And what happens to Elijah is an angel wakes him up and says, hey, bud, it's time to eat. Here's something to eat. Here, here's some bread. Here's some water. Eat. And so he does, and then he, then he falls back asleep, which makes me, makes me think that perhaps Elijah might have been diabetic because, you know, he ate that bread and his, had that sugar drop. That's what happens to me. I eat, and then I'm asleep. 
right? So he falls asleep, and the angel wakes him up again and says, hey, you should eat some more. Have some more bread, have some more water, because you've got a journey to take, and you need this to sustain yourself. And so then it says that he goes 40 days and 40 nights without food. I mean, that sounds like somebody else I know. He makes his way back to Mount Horeb. It's the mountain of God. It's the same mountain that Moses went up when he saw the burning bush. It's the same mountain that Moses went up and received the Ten Commandments on. Like this is, this is like the mountain of God. And so he makes it back to that mountain and he's hiding out in a cave and God speaks to him. Uh, hey, Eli. That's what he called them because they were buds. He's like, Eli, what you doing here in Mount Horeb? He's like, it's been bad, God. It's been so bad. Like, all your people, they don't care. They worship in other gods. They tearing down the altars. Everything they're supposed to do, they don't do. Everything they're supposed to do, they don't. It's bad. I mean... They've killed all your prophets. In fact, I'm the last prophet you have, and God, they're looking to kill me. And so then there's a wind, a whirlwind, but, but God's not in the wind. And then uh, there's an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire. Surely God's in the fire. Nope. And perhaps for those of you who've heard this before, uh, there's uh, a lot of translations will translate this. There's a still small voice. Have you heard that translation before? Still small voice. I particularly love um, this translation. It says, and then there was the sound of sheer silence. Let's see if we can hear the sound of sheer silence. I love this next verse. It says, There was this after the fire a sound of sure silence, and when Elijah heard it, what does it mean to hear silence? That's a beautiful metaphor, hearing silence. Because typically you think you can only hear sound. But I'm here today to tell you that you can hear more than just sound. You can hear the silence. And I think the way humans are made, we actually need this. And I think the culture that we live in, we might especially need it. Like we are, we are bombarded with sound all the time. We get into our cars, we immediately turn on our radios, right? We get into our house, we immediately turn on our TVs. Things are constantly talking to us, right? I've got this... Uh, Amazon Echo, you know, she talks to me, I talk to her, I think she's always listening. I'm frustrated I can't find stuff. She's like, Robbie, do you need something? <laughs> like, yes. But I think, I think we need to slow down a bit. I think we need to, to clear our plates some. I think we need to practice some simplicity and not think that life is a matter of just being busy. 
Like people will ask me, how you doing? And I'll say, well, I'm busy. I got a lot to do. Now I realize I'm, this might be the pot calling the kettle black, right? So I have a full-time job at the university. I edit a journal. I pastor a church. I father six daughters. Other than that, I'm just, you know, binge watching Netflix like the rest of you. <laughs> but I really think that there's, there's a value to the simplicity and there's a danger to the busyness. Like if my calendar's full, I feel like, what? I'm important, I'm valuable, I'm getting something done. But busyness might not be a sign of productivity or value as much as it is a sign of imbalance. Maybe I'm busy because I lack efficiency. Or maybe I'm busy because I lack effectiveness or I lack the discipline of saying no so that I can say yes to the most important things. Because I can tell you from firsthand experience, if you fill up your calendar, there will be times that you want to do something, that you feel like you ought to do something. And it's not an ought that you would be burdensome. It's an, it's an ought that would be freeing and life-giving, and you just don't have time for it. Because you've packed your life full of everything else. It's not in the whirlwind of life at least not always, or in the earthquake of life, or in the fire when we feel like the, the whole world just burning down around us. It's in the still small voice. It's in the, it's in the, in the sound of sheer silence. And so the practice of that actually is an ancient Christian practice. Be still and know that I am God. We said this uh, last week as we talked about the Trinity, that the Trinity is not just some utility that we can use, but the Trinity is God who loves us and wants to be in a relationship. And so we practice stillness. We practice silence to calm ourselves so that I don't end up just being this false projection of me. Right? I want you, when you think of me, there's certain things I want you to think about, right? I want you to think, oh, he's funny, or he's a good communicator, or he's a good father, or he's a smart guy, or he's a snazzy dresser. I don't know, right? So we do things to make ourselves because we want people to think of us a certain way. But that's, that's a facade. It, it lacks the honesty and the authenticity uh, of true relationship. Look, you can't get dressed up for God. God already, God already knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And God already loves you. God loves you more than you love yourself. God doesn't get nervous. God doesn't get impatient. God doesn't get scared. You can't rattle God. God's not like that. God is just in the sound of sheer silence. We opened 
Let me, get, let me go here first. There, there are two psalms that often get paired with 1 Kings 19. One of them is a portion of Psalm 22, and it talks about uh, God kind of providing. Um, what's interesting about that psalm, it's the first two verses of that psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. Jesus will say, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're familiar with that, right? But as, as some scholars suggest, that that's not, on the one hand, that's obviously what it is. It's a, it's a cry for, uh, of despair. Yet, you know, when somebody kind of quotes the first part of a song or you hear the first few bars of a song, the whole, the whole thing kind of comes to you, yeah? Like if I say, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all people are created equal. You think the Gettysburg Address, emancipation, the end of slavery, civil war, right? All of that comes back, not just the phrase. Um, or if I say I pledge allegiance, right? Then immediately you're a six-year-old trying to figure out which way, which hand you cross because you don't know left from right. <laughs> Remember that? All the anxiety comes back. <laughs> that particular song, that particular song, it is a song, that particular psalm that Jesus is quoting starts off in despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends in hope because it says that God comes and God delivers. That the end of the story is a faithful God. <laughs> The end of the story is a God that makes things right, no matter how bad they have gone. And if there ever was a thing that went bad, it was the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Like the very best thing God could give us, we crucified. Like that's the worst possible response to the best possible gift. And even though we did our worst, it still didn't face God. God just resurrects Jesus and says, now what you going to do? Even when we want to give our best or when we don't, if we give our worst, it doesn't seem to affect God. God's not so, he's not a human so that he's so easily... Um, you know, whimsical or capricious. But there's something else that happens when, when God, when the silence comes and we stay with it. Uh, uh, it's not so much a transaction, like God's done something for us and so now we do something and now we're in this like relationship that's kind of contractual. It's more covenantal than that. It's more relational than that. The, the psalm from uh, the call to worship today was Psalm 42, which, which I also love. Um, it's an old, you know, it's, it starts off as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for the Lord. It reminds me of, of two particular things. Uh, for those of you 
who went to Israel with us, um, there's an oasis there called En Gedi. And at En Gedi, there are these little um, deer, these kind of antelope, like miniature antelope-looking things called an ibex. And they're just kind of jumping around, running around. And when I say it's desert, I mean it is desert. Like Grand Canyon meets, you know, um, Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. Kind of put those together, right? And in the middle of all that is this beautiful oasis. And running around that oasis are these little, I don't know what the plural of ibex is. Ibexes? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah. They're just kind of wonderful. And I, I just think about how thirsty you could get in that place and how refreshing that uh, oasis would be. How in the heat you'd just kind of be panting for, for breath and, and for water and how refreshing that would be. And what a beautiful, beautiful imagery I mean, David was there at En Gedi, and he had to see those ibex kind of coming in from the desert. And then he writes, my soul is like this deer that pants for you, O God. There's an old praise and worship song. Um, Depending on your age, you might remember it. As the deer panteth for, for the water, so my soul longeth after you. You, O Lord, are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. That's not my key, apparently. (laughs) But, um, But I love that song. And I do remember times in my life where things were rough. I felt like Elijah, like I'm the only one God in this whole group of people that's even interested in you. And here I am and my life is falling apart. And, I, and that song would just kind of come into my head and I'd start to sing as the deer pants for the water. And things were better. I've got some, some good news. In, yeah, yay. It's in closing. It's, it's, an, it's another passage from the Old Testament. This one comes from Isaiah. It's the end of Isaiah, and you're going to have to hold on because it sounds like it's going to get dark, but wait for the plot twist. This is Isaiah 65. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Before we start, I'll just say this. Look, I, I said it, um, I got a little ahead of myself, I guess, when I, when I came up to take the offering, that uh, God's coming after you, that God's going to get you, but not get you in that way that you thought, get you, like, get you and kill you, or get you and spank you, but get you and love you. Um, listen to this. This is God speaking. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call my name. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. 
a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and offering incense on bricks, who sit inside tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh with broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. See, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay, their, repay into their laps their iniquities and their ancestors' iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they offered incense on the mountains and reviled me on the hills, I will measure into their laps full payment of their actions." Thus says the Lord, as the wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so will I do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. Oh, man, that's good news. And not destroy them all. I mean, it sounded like it was going bad there at first, right? So God's like, look, you didn't come looking for me. I came looking for you. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that wasn't even interested. We sang about this earlier, about God's relentless love. Before we ever thought about loving God or responding to God or obeying God, before that ever crossed our minds, God's like, mm, I love them. God says, I love them. I, I want them. I want to be with them. And they did all sorts of things. All sorts of crazy stuff. Like, it's, a, it's like they went out of their way to do the wrong thing. And we're not going to put up with that. No more. Here I come to love you. God's not coming after you to beat you. He's coming after you to love you. And he's convinced. And I'm here to tell you that his love is so great that it can do in you what sheer willpower can't. I should do this. I'm trying real hard. How's it going for you? Not so good, right? Or you should do this. Okay, I'll try. Look, all of that can't work on this. But God's love can. God's love is so transformative that as we experience it and as we rest in it and as we lean into it, we'll find out that He's not going to destroy us all. He, he's going to make it right. He's not only going to make right that out there that we were so concerned about, like Elijah was worried about all those other people in Israel. He's going to make that right, but he's going to make it right from the inside out there, and he's also going to make it right from the inside out right here with my, my own struggles, my own shortfalls. And that's good news.
So how might we get there? Well, there's plenty of things in this passage that I think invite us to do different things. Running after God. Fasting. He, he went 40 days and 40 nights without food. Now, you might want to start a little shorter than that. And if you're diabetic, you make sure you talk to your doctor. But then there's this, there's this silence. There's this commitment to wait. To not be kind of let your, um, not, to not be distracted by the whirlwind or an earthquake or a fire. But just listen to the sound of sheer silence. Inter, introduce into your life a practice of meditation or contemplation. And it's not, it's not a wonder drug. It's not like you do it and you're like, okay, did that. You got anything else for me? Because it just doesn't work that way. A quick story. Um, it was about 15 years ago. I mean, I had, I had read The Cloud of Unknowing when I was 19. It's a medieval piece about being silent with God. And I, I think I, I understood it, you know, ish. I had lots of meaningful conversations with my professor. But about 15 years ago, I actually started practicing some silence with my friend Ricky Cotton. And we had a small group of folks. We'd pray together on Thursdays, and then we'd meet on, on Mondays as well for a while. And then eventually the Thursday group kind of ceased, and we met on Monday for about 10 years. And uh, if you just know me kind of around church or, or as a public you know, figure, you might not be able to guess and, and I know those of you that you know me well know this, that I, by nature, have a bit of a temper, right? It's, uh, it's something that I'm not proud of, and as is typical often, it's something that I'm more apt to show to people who can't, who can't uh, retaliate, right? It's a form of kind of displaced anger, psychologists say. You get mad at work. But you can't yell at your boss, so you go home, you kick the dog, yell at the kid. And so um, what my older children are more familiar with than my younger children uh, is uh, dad sometimes would get, this is what Katie and Hannah would call it, the evil eye. So apparently I look different. And they knew to stay out of my way because I was on a bit of a rampage. And then I started practicing silence, some meditation. And it wasn't a lot. I'm talking like 30 minutes a week is what I started practicing. So that's not some you know, major practice. And Angela, my wife, for those of you who don't know, Angela um, started seeing a difference in me. And it didn't happen after a week or a month. But after six months, after a year, after a year and a half, after two years, now 15 years later, 
she would say to me sometimes, she would say, <laughs> you been to prayer lately? And I'm like, no, I've missed the last month. I don't know. What, why? What are you asking for? <laughs> well, because you don't seem to be yourself, at least not your new self, not your true self. Those emotions seem to be more in charge of you than just things that you're experiencing. This, this is not something just to do or hear about on a Sunday. This is something to practice day after day after day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. And you're just going to have to trust me on this one. Three, four, five years in, you will see a difference. You'll be able to look back over the long arc of your life and see how the grace of God changed you, formed you from glory to glory, as Paul says, evermore into the image of his Son and our Savior. Amen. I love that song, Heart of Worship. No, Heart of Worship, what does it help me? Let my words be few? Yeah. Let my words be few, thanks. I love that song, Let My Words Be Few. It's kind of a funny thing to say after I just talked to you for 30 minutes, isn't it? I love it because when things are either the very, very best or the very, very worst, words reach their capacity to communicate, right? That's why we laugh. It's, it's why we laugh so hard we cry. It's why we giggle or shout for joy. It's why we clap. It's why our faces just kind of beam, right? Because it's more than what words can say. Or it's why we groan. It's why we ache, right? It's why we bear in our bodies the difficulties of life because it's more than what words can say. The love of God is more than what words can say. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.